welcome to episode 17 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your quick as a bunny host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Rides. I've got two more second season episodes lined up for you. Episode 7, Sweet Terror, and episode 8, King Kamehameha Blues. So if the sound quality is a little bit inconsistent for this episode, it's because I typically record it in two parts. I talk about one episode, usually one day, and then the next day I talk about the next episode because I usually only have time to do one. This episode, actually, I'm recording the first part in my room instead of in the box room because there's nobody around, so I'm going to take advantage of that before I have to move back to the box room and sit on the hardwood floor in there. Also, it's currently really windy, so you're probably going to be able to hear that. Sorry, I don't control the weather, no matter what my cats think. And I cannot attest to the quality of the sound clips for this episode. I had some minor technical difficulties while trying to do them, so hopefully they ended up okay. Otherwise, I'm not doing them again. But enough of that. Let's go to Hawaii. Episode 7, Sweet Terror, air date November 5th, 1969, directed by Richard Benedict. This is 6 of 11 for him, and written by Robert C. Dennis. This is 3 of 6 for him. On an airplane, there's sketching, smoking, ample legroom, and messages passed to the captain that are cleverly intercepted by a cigar-smoking man with epic sideburns. He kills the message sender, an intelligence agent named Bridger, by stabbing him through the back of the seat with an umbrella, leaving him for the poor flight attendant to find when they land. The message that Bridger gave the captain to radio in was for an intelligence man named Hendricks, who gets in touch with Steve. Hendricks and Dano wait at the airport for Bridger, but end up filling Steve in at the morgue. Bridger was tailing a man named Eric Stoss, though that's probably not his real name because he has several, who is probably posing as Dutch because he's a Nazi who can't go home again, and he's currently working for the Chinese and was on his way back from a meeting with other communists in Venezuela. I think that's a bingo. 
The doc informs him that Bridger was killed by a lumbar puncture that was so small he almost missed it, and even if anyone on the plane did notice him being killed, there was nothing they could have done, and his death would have most likely been mistaken for a heart attack. Vivo thinks the girl that Bridger was sketching might be connected to Stoss. There's a better chance to find and tail her than Stoss, but they can't figure out why he's in Hawaii. Meanwhile, Stoss knows exactly what he's doing in Hawaii. He's got another conference, this one at the house of Quan Lee, who's being forced to host it against his will by Stoss's associate Lau. What Stoss currently requires is rest and no one to touch the briefcase he's carrying because what it contains is deadly. Danny and Chin Ho tail the mystery woman through Chinatown to an herb shop where she rudely requests that a list of ingredients be ready for her the next morning. When another man informs her that she's being followed, she leaves the shop by a back exit. However, in her haste, she runs out of an alley and gets hit by a cab. Steve and Danny check in on her at the hospital. Steve is rough on Danny for blowing the tail, but Dano points out that they still have her. Chin Ho then informs Steve and Danny about the missing formula that the young woman showed the chemist. Dano suspects that some of the formula is missing. Steve is finally allowed to talk to the woman, Mariana Danava, who has an answer for everything. She didn't know Bridger had died on the flight, doesn't know Stoss, only went into the shop to browse, and likes to doodle formulas because she once studied chemistry. Steve leaves unsatisfied, but Chin Ho brightens his day by informing him that Hendrix found a picture of Stoss. Steve orders the island papered with that photo, which flatters Stoss to a certain extent. He then tells his assembled associates that in 72 hours, they will commit the greatest act of sabotage anyone has ever seen. The plot? to destroy Hawaii's sugarcane crop with a special fungus that will create a shortage and force the world to get their sugar supply from a country that's been plagued by an embargo. He then instructs Lau to get to Mariana. They need her expertise to activate the formula in the vials he has. He also fears that since she's been questioned by 5-0 that she could be a danger to them. Lau gets into Mariana's room by posing as a doctor. He demands that Mariana write down her formula for him and then gives her poison to take, promising that it will be painless. She can't risk being questioned again and betraying the cause. When Steve returns to question her, all Mariana will say is that she is a proud communist before the poison kicks in and she's racked with pain. Realizing that Lau lied to her, she gives him up and tells Steve about the plan, begging to live, but ultimately succumbing to the poison. The governor holds a meeting in which the Department of Agriculture fills everyone in on how devastating this parasitic fungus will be and says that they'll most likely distribute it through crop dusting so the trade winds can carry it. That has 5-0 looking into crop duster owners in the middle of the night, but Steve doesn't care. They have to find Stoss before it's too late. Now if you know me, you know the one thing I truly love is an eccentric villain. When I covered... The Green Hornet with Dan on eventually Super Train, which you should totally go back and listen to those episodes and listen to the current episodes, listen to every single episode. When we were covering The Green Hornet, there was, I think it was the last two-parter of the series in which this villain who fancied himself to be a genius decided to steal an atomic bomb by staging what looked like to be a, an alien invasion. They had like a UFO. They were all dressed in uh, silver jumpsuits. They had silver makeup on. It was amazing. And it was way over the top, probably more effort than needed just to steal an atomic bomb. But I so adore that. I love that level of theatrics. I love that flourish. Eric Stoss has that flourish. The plot that he is executing, 
his plan, though Devious is not nearly as overdone as the, the villain in the Green Hornet episodes, but it's still got, he's got a flair, he's got a flourish about him, and it is a very devious plot. It's an act of terrorism aimed directly into the heart of industry, at least in Hawaii. It's preying on capitalism itself and the, the concept of supply and demand, which I think is just fabulous in its malevolence. And Stoss is a very cool character, very charming, very elegant. There's a almost a zen quality about him. He doesn't get uptight when things kind of don't go their way. The only time you actually see him get anywhere close to being riled is, is when he goes to Quan Lee's house and he puts down his briefcase for a moment and one of Quan Lee's servants goes to, to take the case upstairs and he stops him and demands that no one touch that briefcase. That's really the only time you see him get uptight. For the most part, he is very, very mellow, very serene. He might be a little arrogant, but he also comes across as rather likable for a Nazi who basically rents himself out to other bad guys. And the bad guys in this episode are, of course, communists. Communism was the go-to bad guy back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And so our communists are from Venezuela. Esteban, I think, is from Venezuela. Mariana de Nava is from Colombia. And Lao, I believe, is from China. So this is a sadistic plot enacted on behalf of the evil communists against the wholesome capitalists. Same old, same old. And of course, they have to make the communists look even more treacherous than what they actually are any given chance that they have because the communists cannot be trusted. And that's why you have when poor Mariana there, who is really, really rude to the Chinese chemist at the herb shop, which kind of made me not feel bad when she ended up taking the poison because she was so unnecessarily rude. This is what I need. Please have it ready at exactly nine o'clock tomorrow morning. These ingredients are rare. They can be obtained. It will be expensive. Old man, I am a chemist. I know the exact cost of every item on that list. Then you also know this formula requires refrigeration. Pack it in crushed ice in a thermos jug. You're very young to have such knowledge. And you are very old to be alive. Lao goes to her and tells her that she needs to take the poison because she needs to remain loyal to the cause and she is adamant that she can be loyal to the cause by not dying. Lao is insistent that she cannot be questioned again. They can't afford any slips. He promises that the poison will be painless and it's not and that's why she gives him up because her own people betrayed her and that's what they make it look like because later there's something that happens with Lao where he's betrayed as well. You can't trust any of these people. But earlier in the episode, when Stas first addresses Lau and about Mariana and says that she's in hospital because of a road accident, she needs to be taken care of. And Lau insists that his dossier on Mariana is that she's very loyal to the cause. Stas says something to the effect of loyalty is a commodity that's bought and sold, which highlights his stance in this whole thing expertly. He's not a communist. He was hired by communists to carry out this plot. He just is a guy who enjoys doing bad things for money. He has no loyalty to this cause, which is why it's so easy for him to say, yeah, take out this woman because she could be a liability. It has nothing to do with the cause for him, everything to do with the money and carrying out the plot. 
And I think that's what I really like about this whole thing is that it, it could just be the standard communism bad, capitalism good, good guy, bad guy plot. But when you throw Stoss in the mix and he's actually a very charismatic mercenary, it makes it a little more interesting that he is essentially playing both sides for his own gain. So that makes the whole episode a little more interesting. Also, Lau is played by Sunteko, and we know how much I love Sunteko. He's once again a fabulous bad guy, and it's comforting to know we're going to see him like five more times playing different characters. So on the 5-0 side of this plot, they really don't have a whole lot to go on at the very beginning because 5-0 is working with Hendrix, the intelligence man, who at first doesn't really want to explain what's going on, but Steve kind of forces him like, you can't keep secrets when we're investigating this agent's death. All they know is that he was tailing the beast, is what Eric Stoss is known as. And he tracked him from Venezuela to Mexico City to Los Angeles to Hawaii for some reason. They just know that he came from a conference with a bunch of other communists. They're not exactly sure what the plot is or why he's in Hawaii. And Bridger had been sketching. You saw him in the opening scene sketching Mariana de Nava, who's sitting across from him. And when the stewardess asks him about it, he's like, oh, it helps to pass the time. But really, it's he's basically doing a police artist sketch of this woman because he thinks she's implicated in this this plot. That's part of the reason why he passes the note to the stewardess to give to the captain is basically to let Hendricks know that he's coming and, and he's following Stoss. And Stoss intercepts, he, Stoss is, you know, on the flight. So he intercepts this, this message, which was actually quite clever, by asking to use the pad that Bridger had written on, takes his cigar ash, taps it on the, the sheet, rubs it, and so he can see the impressions that were made. So he know he's, knows he's being followed. He goes, he sits behind Bridger, and he's sitting with his compatriot, Esteban. And he takes his, his umbrella and, and stabs the guy through the back, stabs Bridger through the back of the chair. And when I first watched this episode, my first thought was, oh my gosh, if that if his seatmate does not, is not with him, that is an incredibly awkward move. Because <laughs> you have this random guy sitting next to you and you're doing something weird with your umbrella. And yeah, he's it's a good thing you're in the process of landing. He's not going to want to talk to you for the rest of the flight. But that awkwardness was avoided because Esteban is with uh, Stoss. So he does. He, he stabs him through the plane seats and he gives kind of a lurch. They land. Everybody gets off the plane. The flight attendant goes to wake him up because he, she thinks he's just asleep and finds him dead. Poor flight attendant. She deserves to be paid more. But I will say that the, the flight attendant's when they're flying, this is just something I noticed. So the flight attendants in flight have a completely different, they're wearing like Aloha print dresses, long dresses. And then when they land, they're wearing more traditional flight attendant uniforms. So they have a costume change on this flight because that's what aviation used to be. Legroom, smoking, and costume changes. How far we've fallen. But anyway, outside of the fact that 5-0 knows that Bridger was trailing Stoss. They don't know where Stoss is. They don't know what he looks like at that time. Hendrix ends up coming up with an old passport photo, and that's what they use to make the flyers. But what they do have is the sketch of Mariana. 
So Steve decides that that's where they'll start because they don't know who this woman is, but they also don't know what Stoss looks like. And because they figure the beast will be harder to track than this woman. And they show Danny and Chinho and Kono going around talking to the flight attendant, talking to cab drivers, doing the footwork, the legwork, showing off Mariana's sketch and before they finally get a hit and they're able to track her to Chinatown. So there's some real grassroots police work there. The old school hitting the bricks type of police work that leads them to Mariana. And of course, Mariana doesn't give Steve anything until after she was poisoned. And the poisoning scene is interesting because Lau says that she takes it, she'll just drift off, there will be no pain. So when Steve comes in to question her the second time, which is great too because Lau pretends to be a doctor to get into her hospital room because it's guarded. And when he leaves, he and Steve actually cross paths at the elevator, which is kind of funny because twice he, he chides Dano on not following the beast, but he didn't know he was looking, when he didn't know he was supposed to be looking for Eric Stoss, chides him for not following the girl or finding out who the girl was when he didn't know he was supposed to be looking for the girl. And here we have this major associate, Lau, passing Steve in the hospital and Steve doesn't realize it. So it kind of illustrates just how difficult all of this was that he was riding Danny's ass for when he can't even do it. But anyway, when he goes into the hospital room and he starts talking to Mariana again, and she's obviously, she almost comes across as kind of sedated and she just admits to being a communist and calls him a capitalistic oppressor, which isn't wrong. And all of this stuff and then the pain kicks in from the poison and she sits up and and she's like oh he lied to me I took poison to be loyal to the cause he she ends up Steve's holding her like holding her to his chest in a very tender moment while she gives up all of this information that the person who gave her the poison is loud they're gonna destroy the sugar crop with a fungus all of this stuff and then she keeps saying, I don't want to die. And she does. And it's just the most awkward death scene. Because Steve's holding her in such a way that it's like, it's not that, like, it doesn't look like she's dying from poison. She looks like she's upset because a man jilted her. So then suddenly she, you know, she like kind of tenses up and dies in his arms. And it's just really awkward. I have no idea what poison that was. I'm guessing it came from a soap opera. So with that information, Steve is able to get in touch with the Department of Agriculture, get in touch with the governor, and they assemble this meeting. And there's one guy in there when Steve is explaining that this is how it's going to work or what the plot is. There's this guy who doubts the whole time and he is like just the jackass of all trades, I guess, because he's like, well, I just think that Mr. McGarrett has come up with basically another way to stay relevant and stay in the news. And it's just like, really? He's going to go to all of this trouble? Okay. So they have the guy from the Department of Agriculture come up and educate us all about sugarcane and the ways that sugarcane crops can be destroyed. And it's literally like watching a film strip in high school about it. That's just the presentation that this guy has. It is amazing. It took me right back to bio too. And basically what he says is that this fungus will be devastating to Hawaii's sugarcane crop and not just for that year but for years to come because the fungus will find ways to reproduce and it will just be continued devastation. He also says that most likely it will be distributed through crop dusting because the trade winds can catch it and carry it even further so they actually don't have to do as much to cause such widespread damage which is quite clever. So this has 5-0 looking into crop dusters 
and it's literally like it's midnight and they're in the office. Finally, we see Chin Ho take his suit jacket off. Everybody's got their suit jacket off, but Steve actually has taken off his tie as well. But we see Chin Ho finally take off the suit jacket. I'm guessing that's just how much pressure there is. We've seen Chin Ho before on his day off. He was still in a suit and the other late night work sessions, he was still put together. So he's finally feeling the heat. Anyway, so they're having this late night work session like this you wouldn't go to a crop dusting company rent a plane same thing privately owned dusters some growers have their own yeah they don't rent them out well, other ways pressure the worst kind what are you getting at chen stoss is working for the chinese if he could find a grower with family steel in china he's got it give that man a free fu young hourly food not exclusively brother <laughs> all right let's go over the list again it's almost midnight None of the places will be open. Well, then we knock on doors. Either we nail stars now or we'll be growing toadstools instead of cane. Let's go. So again, we get to see them do some boots on the ground police work by interviewing several people with crop dusters. And they end up finding out that the plot has already begun because one of the farmers shows Dano some of the fungus damage that he's found. Meanwhile, it turns out that Steve knows Quan Lee. Of course he does. And he goes to Quan Lee's house. Quan Lee doesn't have a crop duster, but he does have a helicopter that can be fit for dusting. And so Steve goes and asks him about that. And in the course, ends up meeting up with Eric Stoss. Who flies it? By the way, Quan Lee's house is Robin's Nest, so we're back at Robin's Nest again. I will not give spoilers on the ending. I never do, or I try not to. In non-spoiler revelations, I can say that Steve was kind of a dick to Quan Lee, and I also question how Steve th honestly thought this was going to go when he first met Eric Stoss and told him that he was under arrest and he's literally standing there with no backup on what amounts to Eric Stoss's turf at that moment. Sometimes I think Steve believes his own hype a little too much. But you know what? This guest cast does live up to the hype. They are fabulous. Let's take a quick look at them all. Professor Eric Stoss was played by Theodore Bickle, he turned up in things like Wagon Train, Twilight Zone, Route 66, Burke's Law, Mission Impossible, Cannon, Mod Squad, Ellery Queen, Little House on the Prairie, Charlie's Angels, Columbo, Fantasy Island, All in the Family, Trapper John, M.D., Knight Rider, Fall Guy, Dynasty, Falcon Crest, Star Trek The Next Generation, Law and Order, Babylon 5, Murder, She Wrote, and Jag. He was also in the movies Crime and Punishment, Shattered, Very Close Quarters, My Side of the Mountain, my Fair Lady, I Want to Live, I Bury the Living, The Enemy Below, and The African Queen. And he was in the TV movies, Killer by Night, Murder on Flight 502, A Stoning in Fulham County, and he was the voice of Aragorn in the Rankin and Bass Return of the King. 
Mariana Denava was played by Linda Marsh. We'll see her in two more episodes. She was also in Route 66, Perry Mason and the new Perry Mason, The Wild Wild West, I Spy, The Man from Uncle, Bonanza, Big Valley, Ironside, Night Gallery, Gunsmoke, Manix, Mod Squad, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Rookies, SWAT, Cannon, and The Streets of San Francisco. She was also in the movies Freebie and the Bean, Stop, Che, and Hamlet, the 1964 Richard Burton version. She also produced 80 episodes of Facts of Life and 9 episodes of Valerie. She also wrote 24 episodes of the Facts of Life and 2 episodes of Valerie, as well as 3 episodes of One Day at a Time. She also produced and wrote the Facts of Life, Go to Paris. Quan Lee was played by Philip Ahn. We saw him previously as the Attorney General in Cocoon, and we will see him in one more episode. I don't think I talked about him in the pilot episode, so I'm going to go ahead and give him a little bit of attention now. He has 185 credits going back to 1934 on IMDb, so here are just a few. He was Master Khan on Kung Fu. He also turned up in the 50s Dragnet. Have Gun Will Travel, The Rebel, Hawaiian Eye, Perry Mason, Stony Burke with Jack Lord, Bonanza, The Wild Wild West, The Man from Uncle and The Girl from Uncle, Big Valley, My Three Sons, Mannix, Mission Impossible, Ironside, Mash, Samford and Son, and Wonder Woman. He was in the movies Thoroughly Modern Millie, Paradise Hawaiian Style, Shock Corridor, Diamond Head, Love is a Many Splendored Thing, Hell's Half Acre, The Halls of Montezuma, and The Creeper. And he was in the TV movie, The Killer Who Wouldn't Die. As I said, Lau was played by Soon Teko. This is his third episode of Eight. We also saw him in Cocoon and The Face of the Dragon. Esteban was played by Alex McAngus. This is his only credit. Leonard Burleson, the Department of Agriculture guy, he was played by Bill Bigelow. This is his second of 15 episodes. We also saw him in 40 Feet High and It Kills. Hendrix was played by Bill Reddick. He was also in the movies Shoot the Moon, Sudden Impact, and Massive Retaliation. Doc was played by Robert Briand. This is his third of five episodes. We also saw him in The Big Kahuna and To Hell with Babe Ruth. Lee was played by Galen Cam. This is his first of 11 episodes. He was also in an episode of Magnum P.I., as well as the TV movies Sticking Together and The Islander. He also has an uncredited role in The Hawaiians. Nurse Mako was played by Emma Veery. This is her first of seven episodes. She also turned up on the Mike Douglas show as a vocalist. Frank Bridger was played by Dick Cook. He also had an uncredited role in Tor Tor Tor, as everybody else who ever lived in Hawaii during that time did. Our officer was Fred Titcom. We'll see him in two more episodes. Kim was played by Victor Young. We'll see him in one more episode. He also had an uncredited role in The Hawaiians. Our stewardess was Margie McClay. This is her only credit. The chemist was C.K. Huang. We'll see him in five more episodes. The guard was played by Joe Brennan. He was also in the video short Old Man's Story. The cab driver was played by Chuck Couch. This is his second of 13 episodes. He was uncredited in this one. And the hospital doctor was Kenneth Ng. This is his first of three episodes, and he was uncredited in this one. And that is Sweet Terror. I really like this episode. A lot of credit goes to Theodore Bacall and his portrayal of Eric Stoss. He makes a fun, charismatic, eccentric 
villain. I also really do like the plot. It's a twist on the communism is bad take, but it's done in such a way that it is very specific to Hawaii in that they're targeting the sugarcane crop. And it's quite clever and ingenious the way they're enacting that plot. It makes for a highly entertaining episode. Give it a watch. Taken from an old passport photograph. These things never do justice. Still, it does suggest a certain roguish quality. Chen, what do we got here? The alarm was set up at 437. They're checking out to see if anything is missing. Who's that? Dr. Chelsdorf, the museum curator. Nice, but the nervous type. Maybe he's got a lot to be nervous about. Doctor? Episode 8, King Kamehameha Blues, air date November 12th, 1969, directed by Barry Shear. This is his only uh, episode for Hawaii Five-O. And written by Robert Hamner, this is the first of two episodes for him. A college student named Eddie shinnies up a drain pipe to the roof of a museum where inside a tour guide is informing a group about King Kamehameha I's feather cloak. Two members of the group, Arnie and Diane, know about Eddie, and Arnie tosses a small packet near the cloak as they leave. The museum closes, the visitors are cleared out, and Eddie lowers Sam the cat through a skylight. Once on the ground, Sam quickly finds the packet, setting off a floor alarm. Outside, Arnie and Diane take a break from playing with some kids to time the alarm response. 64 seconds. Five-O is one of the responders because King Kamehameha's cloak is incredibly valuable and only on display for short periods. Steve talks with the curator, who assures him nothing is missing and they don't know who set off the alarm, a mystery that Kono solves when he appears with Sam the cat, who was then taken to the office to be booked and given some milk and catnip. Arnie and Diane watch Steve leave, giggling over the surprise that they have for him. At their pad, Arnie, Diane, Eddie, and Johnny, who stayed on the ground while Eddie went to the roof, decide that they'll do their daring break-in the next night because, you know, exams. The next morning, Steve returns to the museum, puzzling about how the cat got in. The curator assures him that they have a security system that can't be beat and lays it out to him while Arnie does the same to his crew. The foursome show up at the museum that night. Eddie and Johnny will be doing the breaking and entering while Arnie and Diane will be in the car course. Eddie and Johnny climb to the roof and enter through the skylight and descend to the floor. Inside they construct a tripod and Johnny levers Eddie over the floor so he can swipe the cloak which he wears as they climb back out again. Meanwhile outside a cop on patrol discovers Arnie and Diane who quickly start to make out and then move along like he says only to move back in time to pick up Eddie, Johnny, and the stolen cloak. Five-O investigates the theft, taking footprint casts outside and dusting for prints inside. 
Danny finds remnants of the rope rigging on the roof, and Che Fong finds scratches on the marble floor from the tripod. All of the evidence ends up being too general to be of much use. Steve gets a call from the governor, who demands that he go on TV and offer amnesty for the thieves in exchange for the safe return of the cloak. At the thieves' pad, Arnie, Diane, and Eddie are having a good time taking turns trying on the cloak, but half-Hawaiian Johnny is reluctant. Later, when they see Steve on the news offering amnesty for the return of the cloak and explaining how fragile it is, they discuss giving the cloak back, but Arnie would rather burn it. After all, this whole thing was done to put the squeeze on the establishment. Five-O figures out that the scratches could have been from a tripod and speculate how that could have been used to steal the cloak. Though Kono suggests a giraffe, Steve realizes that kids could have done it. The patrol cop then comes in and outs Arnie and Diane as being near the scene of the crime at the time. Steve and Dano find them at the beach, and Danny informs Steve everything he found out about them while taking pictures of some girl. Steve asks him to get a few of their suspects as well. Arnie, Diane, and Eddie have a good laugh at the people on the news lining up to donate money for a reward for the cloak safe return, but Johnny isn't feeling the laughs. They tease him about his hot Hawaiian blood. However, Johnny is back on their side when Steve barges in with a warrant to look for the cloak. While Steve and Arnie exchange words, Kono quietly calls out Johnny. After 5-0 leaves, Johnny finds himself outvoted. The group decides to get rid of the cloak permanently. My apologies for the comedy of terrors. The people in my house can't watch anything at a normal volume, so you can probably hear that in the background. Sorry for that. I really have a problem with this episode. It is very difficult for me to remain objective when watching it because of the crime in question. So we once again have some idealistic kids going up against the establishment. As Arnie says, they're trying to put the squeeze on the establishment, which is fine. However, how they choose to go about this is by stealing an item that has an incredible significance to an indigenous population. And while the theft might make those in authority look bad, the real victims of the crime are the native Hawaiians who have already seen their culture and their heritage dismantled and decimated by colonizers. So in a way, it's no surprise that some rich white kid would come up with this idea of making the establishment look bad by stealing something that has a great cultural significance to a minority group and not caring about that aspect. Being like, yeah, it makes 5-0 look bad. It makes Steve McGarrett look bad. And they so don't care that they're just like, we will never give it back just to continue to make them look bad. And we will destroy this thing that is sacred to these people. It's so heinous and so indicative of white thinking, really, of that privileged thinking. It kind of goes beyond the whole fight against the establishment thing. It's got really, really racist basis. And it doesn't matter that two of the the people involved in the heist, Johnny, who's supposedly half Hawaiian, and then Eddie is Asian. He's played by Randall Duck Kim again. You might have two non-white characters involved in this, but the, the mastermind in this is a white man. So it's an incredibly racist crime, you know, masked in this whole we're fighting against the establishment thing. And it's it's incredibly privileged. And, and Arnie shows his privilege later in the episode because we find out that he comes from money. He's, his, he's Arnold something the third and his, his family's in construction. So he comes from an incredibly wealthy family. And then later when he's having his back and forth with Steve, when Steve is looking for the cloak, 
he tells him at one point he says something about the government sending guys like him to various wars and it's like while you have a point they're not sending guys like you because you are white with money credence clearwater revival literally wrote a song about your ass so it's this incredibly privileged racist crime and it 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 really does leave a very bad taste in my mouth. I don't enjoy watching this episode at all. I don't like it. And also for a crime that is being committed against the native Hawaiians by having this very significant cloak stolen, there's not a whole lot of Kono in it. He has a little bit of a role when they serve the warrant. He does, he does call out Johnny and remind him of his heritage. But overall, I mean, he should be way more involved in this because he's Native Hawaiian. This is a crime against his people. You would think that he would be way more involved and he's not. It's entirely possible that it's just hitting me differently, that I'm reading too much into it or holding it to uh, too high of a standard. I mean, it was 1969. It's just a really enraging episode for me. There is no joy in this, Mudville. Aside from that, this episode in a lot of ways is kind of dull because, first of all, we see in the beginning they actually do kind of a test run in having Eddie climb up to the top of the museum and put Sam down through the skylight, which that was not a stunt cat. They used an actual cat, lowered that poor kitty from a height. I hope they only did one take because it was clear the kitty did not have a good time. But he, he, can't, he hit the ground and finished his scene like a trooper. So I hope he got incredibly spoiled for that stunt. I was not thrilled with that either, but that aside. So we see how Eddie gets up there and puts the cat in, which gives you a hint of how they're going to get in there. And of course, the police and security in 5-0 respond. Sam is nabbed in a really cute scene. And the next day, Steve is still bothered by the fact that this cat got into the museum. And that's the setup for us going through all of the museum's security measures, both with the curator and Steve, and then intercut with Arnie informing his crew. So we get a good idea of how this security works. They, they kind of lay it on so you get this idea that they're really accomplishing something by stealing this cloak. So they decide to do it the next night. And what ensues from the time the foursome roll up to the museum in the car until the time the foursome pull away from the museum in the car with the cloak is 14 minutes of screen time devoted to this heist. Now we already know how Eddie's gonna get in and he takes Johnny with him this time. Johnny doesn't stay on the ground. We already know how he's gonna get in, but we get to watch the two men once again climb the side of the building, get up to the skylight, descend through the skylight. Once they get in, we see them construct the tripod. Then Johnny hooks Eddie up to the to the lever, levers him over the floor. He steals the cloak, bring him back, deconstruct the tripod. The two of them climb out. This is intercut with Arnie and Diane outside watching them climb up, waiting for them to get back, the cops showing up, them driving away, them coming back. 
it is 14 minutes. It actually takes them almost five minutes just to get into the museum. There is also during this a commercial break at about the six minute mark. So it's 14 minutes plus whatever commercial time they would have had back in 1969. That would have been shorter than what it is today. But 14 minutes of a 54 minute episode was devoted to this heist. I have to admit, I t zoned out both times I watched it because it wasn't that interesting. The heist really could have been edited and cut down and it would still make perfect sense and wouldn't have been any less thrilling. But because they basically showed them in real time constructing all of this stuff and climbing and all of this, it was dull. It was a very dull heist. There was really very little tension there. Even when the cop pulled up, it wasn't enough. Didn't add enough interest, I don't think. It was just too much. It was too long. So then we're treated to scenes of 5-0 investigating this crime mixed with these kids being incredibly dis disrespectful to this cloak and Johnny's growing unease with their behavior. First of all, just looking at all four of them, I find it hard to believe that any of them are doing well in college. There's not a whole lot of brain activity happening, at least with Eddie, Diane, and Johnny. Arnie is textbook narcissist, a slightly sociopath. He He's the leader. He thinks he's incredibly smart. But you know he argues every F that he gets because he didn't turn in his homework and refuses to study for tests. He thinks he's entitled to an A. You can just tell. Now the thing that they emphasize when Steve has to go on television to offer amnesty for the return of the cloak, which he does not want to do, he tells the governor that it's giving permission to commit crime. And we know how Steve feels about crime. That is his number one pet peeve. But the governor forces him to do this. He is explaining how delicate and fragile that this cloak is because it's like 100 years old. It took years to make. The feathers used can't be found anymore. So it needs to be hung up. It needs to be out of direct sunlight, all of this stuff. Meanwhile, these kids are taking turns wearing it and playing matador with it and generally just manhandling this this cloak. And I'm like, you know, it's holding up pretty well for being something so fragile. You don't even see a feather come off. I feel like if they were gonna be, if they were gonna have the kids be that rough with this cloak, they should have at least had it shed a feather or two. Maintain some believability here. Anyway, like I said, there's some growing unease with Johnny about the cloak because he is half Hawaiian and I think it's finally sinking in that the crime that they've committed is more against his people than against the establishment. And his friends, his so-called friends, just shout him down at every turn. They, they tease him, they mock him, they mock his concern, they mock that he wants to give it back. They refer to him as having hot Hawaiian blood, which is really kind of racist. We see them do this to him multiple times. They know he's not happy about this. But when Steve and Five-O show up with the warrant to look for the cloak, Johnny's back on their side. And part of that, I am sure, is safety in numbers. They can't get us all if we stick together. But there's also kind of that underlying thing of that he does consider them his friends, even though they're just complete and total jerks. Honestly, Johnny, get better friends. Real friends won't be racist assholes to you life lesson. And of course, it's after that confrontation and after Kono whispers in Johnny's ear to remind him about his heritage that there's another pseudo vote taken about what to do with the cloak, which obviously Arnie wants to get rid of it so no one can have it. It means nothing to him, literally. 
Diane is Arnie's girlfriend. She's going to do whatever he wants her to do. Honestly, I have absolutely no idea what Diane's role was in this whole heist, other than the fact that they mentioned she was an anthropology student, so she probably knew of the significance of the cloak and passed that along to Arnie, and he's the one that came up with this idea. But other than that, she was pretty much useless. But of course, she's on Arnie's side. Eddie offers the idea of trading in the cloak for the reward money because he believes that will be significant. And Arnie immediately shoots him down and says, no, we're not doing that. So Eddie goes along with Arnie and then Johnny doesn't get a vote because they know what Johnny's going to vote. And they decide that he's outvoted and decide that they're going to get rid of the cloak. Now, obviously, it's not a spoiler to say that the cloak is saved, but I'm not going to go into how the cloak is saved or how 5 finds out to stop them, or how they were going to get rid of the cloak, I will say that Arnie is going to face a lot more charges than just burglary. I might find this episode infuriating, but the guest cast definitely is not. So let's take a quick look at them. Arnold Potter is played by Brandon DeWilde. He was nominated for an Oscar for Shane, and he was the only one not nominated for the movie HUD. He was also in the movies Blackjack, The Devil's Backbone, In Harm's Way, All Fall Down, and Night Passage. He also turned up in the TV shows Thriller, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Defenders, Love American Style, The Virginian, Night Gallery, Ironside, and he was Jamie McCummer on a short-lived series called Jamie. Diana Cole was played by Jennifer Leake. She also turned up on the shows The Good Guys, McMillan and Wife, The Rookies, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Ironside, Nero Wolf, and Another World. She was in the movies The Photographer, The Eye of the Cat, and Yours, Mine, and Ours. And she was in the TV movies Lost Flight and A Time for Love. Johnny Kalama was played by Vincent Etter. This is his second of two episodes. We also saw him in To Hell with Babe Ruth. Eddie was, as I said, played by Randall Duck Kim. This is his last episode for the show. We also saw him in By the Numbers and Death Watch. The announcer was played by Hal Lewis. We'll see him in three more episodes. Thorpe, the curator, was played by Robert Dixon. We'll see him in one more episode. He also did an episode of The Ed Sullivan Show. Officer Kai was played by Barton McAuliffe. We'll see him in five more episodes. He also turned up on Barney B. Jones and Magnum P.I., and he was in the TV movie M Station Hawaii. The technician, a.k.a. Che Fong, was played by Danny Kamakona. This is his sixth of 33 episodes. The guide was played by Donna K. Benz. We'll see her in two more episodes. She also turned up on Green Acres, Heart to Heart, Chips, and Quincy. She was in the movies Moon and Scorpio, Pray for Death, and Stir Crazy. And she was in the TV movies Mandrake, and Murdoch's gang. And the little girl we see interviewed on the TV, her name is Willa Jo Broussard. We'll see her in one more episode. She was also on The Brian Keith Show. Our director for this episode was Barry Shear. As I said, he this is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O that he directed, but he did direct 21 episodes of The Donna Reed Show, seven episodes of Man From Uncle and Girl From Uncle, five episodes of It Takes a Thief, nine episodes of Name of the Game, five episodes of Alias Smith & Jones, six episodes of Ironside, 13 episodes of Police Woman, three episodes of Police Story, three episodes of The Feather and Father Gang, and he also directed the Starsky & Hutch pilot. He directed the TV movies Undercover with the KKK, Crash, Ellery Queen, Don't Look Behind You, 
Short Walk to Daylight, and Strike Force. And he also directed the movies Karate Killers, The Deadly Trackers, and The Todd Killings. Our writer is Robert Hamner. So he did two episodes of Hawaii Five-O. He is also the creator of SWAT. And so he gets not only the television credit, but also the movie and the reboot credit. He also wrote eight episodes of Hawaiian Eye, seven episodes of A Man Called Shenandoah, four episodes of The Cat, five episodes of Lost in Space, six episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, three episodes of Run for Your Life, three episodes of Alias Smith and Jones, three episodes of The Bold Ones, The Lawyers, two episodes of Canon, two episodes of Emergency, and two episodes of Murder, She Wrote. He also wrote the movies 13 Fighting Men and The Long Rope. And he is writing credits for the TV movies The Challengers, The Forgotten City of the Planet of the Apes, The Other Side of Hell, When Hell Was in Session, and Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders. And that is King Kamehameha Blues, which gives me the blues. Like I said, do not like this episode. It sends me into fits of rage. I don't enjoy it at all. And even if I could be completely objective about it, it's kind of dull. The heist takes too long, I think. The overall plot of it is just, once again, it's a rehash of young people versus the establishment. And it's just so blandly executed if you just eliminate the fact that it's such a racist and privileged crime. Not a fave, not a fan. So just no going in that if you watch this one, I did try to warn you. Somebody light enough to be suspended from the pole. Maybe a midget, or a jockey. How about a monkey, or a giraffe? Giraffe? A giraffe could reach over and get it. But how do you get a giraffe down through the skylight? And that is episode 17 of Bookum Dano. One episode I really enjoyed, one episode I absolutely did not. Such is life when you've got 280 episodes of a show. But thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoy listening to me talk about the episodes, even when I don't always enjoy the episodes. I hope I can at least make it fun for us all. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. And if you want to experience me being annoyed by things in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So keep your sugar crop fungus-free and pick your friends wisely. Until next time, aloha.